Hello and welcome to your Financial Planning Maestro podcast. I'm Jackie Lockie and this is a very special Christmas edition for you. During this podcast, we have lots of things to talk about relating to the financial planning assessment and our special guest Joanna Redmond is back again to give us more tips and hints if you are in the middle of your level 7 CISI financial plan case study assessment to make sure that we maximise your chances of passing as quickly as possible. So I hope you find today's podcast useful. Hello and welcome. I'm Jackie Lockie, your financial planning maestro. And today I am joined by a very special guest who is back by popular demand um, to talk all things certified financial planner assessment related. And that is Joanna Redmond from Investment for Life. Welcome, Jo. Hi, Jackie. Thank you for having me again. (laughs) (laughs) And we're doing an extra special thing today, aren't we? Because we are talking all things CFP related regarding how to build your case study and also, as it's because a, it's a Christmas special as well, we are Christmas jumper laid out and with the little horns on and everything. And we are going to talk um, about some of our Christmas traditions at the end of today's podcast as well. So thanks for rolling up your sleeves and uh, being a willing participant in today's activities. Uh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me here. I mean, I couldn't stop talking last time, I don't think. So we had to go again, didn't we, to fit it all in? <laughs> yes, we did. We did. So we are going to dive straight in um, and start talking about the approach to the case study. So I know that one of the things we've talked about before is about reading the case study and actually not just reading the case study and start, you know, diving in and creating your financial plan submission for the assessment, but actually reading it again, because lots of people seem to get distracted when they get involved in the nitty gritty and actually lose sight of what the client's objectives are, don't they? Definitely, definitely. So read that case study, read the fact find and then do it again and again if you need to and make notes every time that you've read it. Because, you know, when I was marking case studies, I always started by reading the case study before I started marking. And I often found that I would read about queries and concerns that the clients had and I would be then looking for answers to those queries in the text of the submission in front of me. So if something had been excluded, I would have to fail a standard relating to meeting the client's objectives. You just you can't read the fact find too many times because remember the assessors have read it time and time again. You know, they know these clients inside out and they're expecting certain you know, areas to be covered. And they know if something that you've written doesn't fit the client's objectives. Yeah. And that's a really good point because I remember when I was talking to Farida on one of our first series of podcasts, um, she was saying that she wished the thing that she'd done that she most wished that she, or she didn't do actually, that she most wished she had done was write out on a bit of paper and stick it to her wall or stick it to the PC um, exactly what the client's objectives were because she was one of those people who fell down that hole and kind of got lost in doing all the calculations and then didn't bring it back to be relevant to what the client actually wanted. 
Yeah, and there was there was a case study a while ago that I think has long since been retired, but one of the clients was a teacher and she stopped work for many years to uh, raise the children, but her intention was that next year she was going to return to teaching. And in that time that she hadn't been working, the rules for the teacher's pension scheme changed. So I knew that this one sentence that said she was returning to work meant that she had the old final salary scheme pension and the future career average pension for the teacher's pension scheme coming in. And I was already looking for them both to be covered. Yeah. And of course, in a lot of cases, they weren't. Um, Or, you know, in a lot of cases in for that case study, you know, her her previous history was ignored, wasn't it? Or just assumed that it would all be on the new basis. Yeah, that's right. And it's one of those things that perhaps was never intended to catch candidates out. But the rules of the teacher's pension scheme changed after this case study had been written and published. So it it needed picking up on. It needed to be in there. And I was always looking for it. Yeah. (laughs) And, And that leads me on nicely to talk about the facts that you were given, which is another one of your top tips, isn't it? And I, we had our first group call um, with um, the people on my training course last week and somebody fell right into this trap and said, Jackie, my clients aren't married. Can I assume that they do get married? So I thought you you might like that one. (laughs) If only. Yeah, we've seen that a few times as well. And also some, you know, some interesting changes as clients go on throughout the life. But yeah, the tip here is use the facts that you are given. Don't try and change or bend the client's objectives. If they haven't said, for example, that they want to change their car every few years, don't build in a car budget for them, even though it's sensible to do that. You know, if they've said they don't want to take risk, don't put them in a risky portfolio. And I think one of the things that I saw quite often were clients who had ethical or socially responsible or sustainable objectives. Often they would be put into a standard neutral portfolio. And then there would be a a paragraph added about positive and negative screening for ethical funds. You know, that's not an ethical portfolio. Use it from the start. The fact find states those objectives. You know, you don't need to add to them or take away from them. No, no. And and actually, you've got to have that discussion. If you've got clients who who have some sort of ethical views, then that they need to be taken into account when you're looking to adjust potentially or not. But the discussion needs to ha- be happening in your case study, in your financial plan about the client's attitude to risk and how it might change the equity returns and, and actually the other asset class returns, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. And I think there is um, a risk that when you're writing these and you're not in front of real clients, you're not sat down with real people, that you start doing sensible advisor things, you know, making sure that you build in things that you know are things that clients need. But this isn't real life. And whilst you, you know, you can't start, you know, making it up, it's not, it is fictional. Um, We don't want you to make up the content of your submission, but it is only needed to be based on the case study that you've had. And, you know, candidates tie themselves in knots all the time because they're adding in things that the clients haven't said that they want. And it's just not necessary. Don't give yourself extra work. 
<laughs> yes, just do what it says on the tin and yes, do the planning right. <laughs> with the data that you've been given. Yes, don't make everything up. Um, don't don't use phrases like "I have designed your objectives to be" um, yeah. and uh, and things like that. Because last time I looked, they were the client's objectives, not your objectives. Uh, one of the things I've also seen in my days of assessing is that when setting the objective, some people have written your objective is capital growth or your objective is protection. Um, mm-hmm. And 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 it's not, you know, their, their objective is to, you know, as far as protection goes, they might say they're worried about something and they want to ensure that, you know, they're, they're financially stable in the event of one or both of them dying, perhaps. You know, you've got to use the client's own words, haven't you? You've been given that in the interview notes that come with the fact find. Yeah, and I, I know that using the client's words is difficult, especially when sometimes you have a question that's not answered in the case study and the fact find that you've been given. And you know if it was a real situation and you were at work or you sat in front of your client, you just ask them a question and you'd find out. But, you know, you need to make an assumption instead and move on. And if you yeah. really, really feel you must mention some of the things that have been forgotten, for example, the car changing budget, which you know, pops up every now and again in submissions Then put it in there and say, we haven't talked about this, but next time I see you, we will. Yeah. You'll feel better. Yes. But actually that's a good point, isn't it? It's about making a decision and then moving on. Um, One of the, one of the case that one of the queries I had this week was, you know, how many spreadsheets should I do? Should I do a before and after my recommendations spreadsheet? Mm, And and I said, well, look at what the standards require the standards don't actually say you need a before and after spreadsheet, but the standards do say that you need to clearly demonstrate whether the recommendations can meet the client's objectives. So if you if you're woolly in your explanations and you don't have an after spreadsheet to show the effects of your recommendations, then you'll probably fail that section and therefore you'll probably fail the the plan overall. Yeah. And, you know, it's never a bad thing to curry favour with assessors by not sending in too many spreadsheets. (laughs) Yes, you can do a bit (laughs) of death by spreadsheets, but it's about, you know, what you think is proportionate, isn't it, for the advice that you're giving? Because you don't want spreadsheets to be, you know, superfluous to requirements. But if they help prove that all the client's at it, that their clients' objectives are met. And that's actually one of the biggest things that I know I always used to fail candidates on was clearly demonstrating that the client's objectives were met. Yeah. And, you know, some of the onus of making sure that the recommendations are, you know, meeting clients' objectives is on the people who are marking your work as well. You know, I used to keep a tally of how much capital had been used or what the surplus income you know, was at the start of a plan and therefore as each recommendation was made, how much it reduced by. So I often found that, you know, more money had been used in recommendations than was available or, you know, more premiums were paid for protection than the clients had surplus income for. You know, those things are being checked as you go through. Um, It doesn't do any harm to sort of signpost that you've, you've made it and that it's suitable. Don't just write your recommendation and then write at the end, 
And as you can see, this meets your objectives and is a suitable <laughs> recommendation. <laughs> no, you've got to prove it. There's a difference, yeah. isn't it? There's showing it and proving it and you've got to prove it. And, yeah. and actually, when, talking of spreadsheets, that leads me on very nicely to my favourite subject um, in our household here. Assumptions, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and our next tip about assumptions, and that is one I took, you know, I talk about this so much and people must think I have lost my mind because they laugh at me when I say, make sure that the assumptions you set out in your assumptions section, you actually use in your calculations because you know, like you, so many people just do something different. I, I'm not quite sure why, um, but I just, I keep saying it and everybody goes, yeah, yeah, Jackie, yeah, you know, move on, move on. Um, but then I see, when I see the financial plans of people that have failed, you know, perhaps their first or second submission, it quite often contains mistakes as far as using the numbers are concerned. Yeah, it, it does crop up. Um, I've seen a variety of different assumption figures used for the same thing. And I think we mentioned on the last episode uh, that we recorded of this podcast that, you know, if you're using, for example, the state pension increasing by the triple log, make sure that you inflate the state pension by the highest figure of the three. Don't just use inflation. Don't just use your 2.5%, you know. Um, but we do see that often. And I often see that... Um, candidates use conflicting life expectancies. So often they will state the assumption for how long the clients will live. And then I see another one creeping up, another life expectancy creeping into another scenario. So don't suggest that, for example, in a death scenario, the survivor dies young and therefore um, the money will last for longer because we know we know what candidates are trying to do there, you yeah. know, making sure that there's enough money to see them through to a younger age. But you've already stated an age. You need to stick to it. Yeah. If you've bumped them off, you've bumped them off. And, yeah. uh, you know, if you say that they're going to live to 100 and each client lives to 100. Um, and actually, the mistake I made initially in my spreadsheets when I was creating them for the course was that there was quite a big discrepancy in the age of my two clients that I was working on. And so when I stated in my assumptions that they each of them would live to 100, that meant that when the youngest was 100, the oldest was, I think, 104. Um, and he was still alive in my spreadsheet to start with, which obviously would have failed completely, wouldn't it? Um, it would. It would. <laughs> and it, it does seem to be something that, that seems to crop up quite a lot, that the assumptions get stated at the start and then they get almost forgotten mm. as time goes on. And, you know, there's a lot going on in these submissions. You can't keep track of absolutely everything. Yeah, yeah. But but the important bits of the the assumptions are a very important part of, you know, the building blocks of the financial plan. So I think every time, you know, you need to find a new assumption if they're or you're creating a new assumption, you need to go back and check what you've already got, don't you? You do. And if you if there is any reason to change any assumption, then that in itself is an assumption and it needs to be adequate, reasoned and reasonable to meet the yeah. standards. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. So yes, do what you have stated, and stick to it. Um, one of the one of the other assumptions that I was talking about with my group um, last week was um, dealing with uh, income that's generated from the current portfolio, and how that is dealt with in the assumptions. And we were talking about, say, in the fact find, there is, um, you know, a savings account that is generating, you know, half a percent interest. 
Um, and the question was, how do I add that on top of yeah. the assumptions that I'm setting? And so I said, well, actually, they're included in the assumptions you're setting because your assumptions are the forward looking figures that include growth and dividends or interest and everything in there to try and keep yeah. the calculations as simple as possible. Because let's face it, other than that, it, you're going to be there for a month of Sundays with your spurious accuracy, um, creating so many different spreadsheets and so many columns in spreadsheets, trying to work out things to minute details that actually don't need, do you? No, no, you're right. And, you know, we work with assumptions day to day with clients. We just don't necessarily write them all down. So really, I think the, one of the reasons that assumptions is a stumbling point for the CFP is because we are asking you to do something that you wouldn't normally do. And you might have your assumptions set and you might review them every year or every six months or however often. But there are lots of things you take for granted. Like we're assuming that the clients are well and continue to be well in, in sort of the base scenario, you know, where everything goes exactly as the clients have expected and they both live to age 100 and it's all happily ever after. You know, you're assuming that they'll be well. You're assuming that their relationship stays in the same way it is now, not that they get married <laughs> if they're not already married and things like that. You, it just needs to be consistent. Yeah. So that's a steady state assumption, isn't it? That, you know, you carry on in the same job, you remain in the same marital relationship in the same status that it is in as originally detailed in your case study. Yeah. And, you know, if the clients would be better off getting married, maybe that's a recommendation. I mean, it's an awkward one to make. Yeah. But, uh, maybe you need to recommend that they do that for inheritance tax planning. Yes. for example. <laughs> Although in my in my particular case study that I've been working on, it's I've made it clear and it says the clients under no circumstances want to get married. And so I think in that kind of scenario, you still might suggest it, but you actually wouldn't go there assuming that they had got married, yeah. would you? No, you wouldn't. And I think there's a, another case study or there was in the past, I haven't marked for a while, so I'm a bit out of touch with the current case studies. But there was one where one of the clients had uh, a problem with his health and was a smoker and you know in that case you need to have a think about whether it's reasonable to assume that they live to 100 yeah yeah but is it is it reasonable to assume that they don't you know it's very tricky but those things are put in the case studies on purpose for you to consider and talk about and assessors are looking for you to cover it yeah yeah in whichever you know making a decision reasoning it yeah and then making a decision and then applying the decision that you have made yeah, that's right. And yeah. reasoned, I think, is the big the big factor in the assumptions. Is it reasoned? Because, you know, any number could be adequate if it's well-reasoned and reasonable. Yeah, yeah. Um, but we need to understand your thinking. Yes. So the reasoning bit is really about demonstrating how you're thinking things through, isn't it? It is, yeah. And yeah. I, we mentioned before, didn't we, you know, so long as you have met that adequate reason and reasonable criteria then really you could argue almost anything yeah yeah um, absolutely it still needs to be reasonable at the end of the day of course <laughs> yes and the whole thing you know all your assumptions so many of them stack together don't they so you know you're given some assumptions by the CISI like for price inflation and then you've got to think in terms of um, you know, inflation plus things when you're actually setting the numbers, haven't you? So you can get, you know, that sense of, you know, interaction between the assumptions that you're using. 
Yeah, I think so. And I think that's another area that you probably covered, Jackie, about the, you know, the difference between real returns. Yeah. Uh, using real returns and not doing and that's another place that you can tie yourself in knots yes and I've seen quite a few people in some of the resubmissions that I've been helping with where there's been a lack of understanding between of the differences between real and nominal rates of return and in some spreadsheets there's been a combination of both sets of figures being used um, which obviously you know is is factually inaccurate in any in any world that you're looking at, but obviously the, the it's one of the easy things for the CFP assessors to pick up on, isn't it? it? It is. And I think one of the real difficulties in this is that you look at your own submission, all that hard work and all the hours that you've put in, you look at it as the professional that you are and not in the eyes of someone who doesn't understand. Yeah. So if you start making it too complicated, a client probably can't understand what you're writing. Yeah, yeah. And that leads me on nicely to talk about our next tip, and that is don't undermine your own advice. Um, You know, saying (laughs) one thing, stating one thing, like you said, in the assumptions about longevity and then using something different. Um, You know, those kinds of things are really important to be consistent. Once you've made a decision, just be consistent, don't you? Yeah, don't throw away your good work. So some candidates fall into a trap of writing, you know, sound advice and then adding a sentence on the lines of, but, you know, if X, if something else X happens, it'll all be different anyway. So just writing that one one sentence would make a client question, you know, in what way would it be different? Will I still be okay? And if a client's going to ask that, then an assessor is likely to as well. Mm. Um, An example I've seen of that, just to be clear, is that, Someone in the past was basing their advice on a client receiving a bonus in line with the fact find. Yep. They they wrote great advice based on that bonus money being received and they had passed the standards. And then they wrote one tiny sentence that said, of course, you know, bonuses aren't guaranteed. You may never receive this money. But they didn't go on to explain why the clients might still be okay if that were to happen. And they undermined all of their own hard work. Yeah. And actually, but, all, all they needed to do in, in that case was just state in the assumptions that they were going to assume that that average bonus continued. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Just pop it in the assumptions. The bonus will always be received. And, you know, we all know that things might be different. That's why there's a standard dedicated to explaining the importance of the review process. Yeah, yeah. And in particular, you know, the bonuses and those kinds of things that are perhaps a little bit more obviously uncertain of the future they could be the things that you specifically talk about in your when you put in your paragraph about reviews, aren't they? You can say things like, well, obviously, you know, what are we going to review? Well, we're going to review all of your circumstances, but we're going to pay particular attention to see how your bonuses have been going because, you know, on an, at least on an annual basis, we can alter and change that assumption um, as we go, can't we? Yeah, that's right. You know, and make it easy for yourself. Don't make it harder. If no. you've written great advice, don't don't write something that means that everything you've just written is no longer true. Yeah, yeah, it is. It, it's quite odd, isn't it? When you, you know, you start the, these case studies and the financial plans that we create, and as assessors, we have both assessed in the past, become a huge, huge living thing, essentially, don't they? And yeah. it is really easy to get lost in them, and that's why one of the tips that I always give is. 
that when you finished your submission, uh, even if it's kind of roughly there or thereabouts, that you make sure you leave yourself enough time to shove it in a drawer or just give your brain a rest from it for a few days or a week if you can. Because when you go back to it, you'll find all your typos and all your odd sentences and, you know, all the things that you have done that you might contradict yourself on in different pages um, in your financial plan construction, that actually all those things start to jump out at you, don't they? Yeah, they do. And I think we mentioned this last time too, but just be kind to yourself. Don't make life too hard so that when you submit, you're not really sure whether you're going to pass or not. Yeah. Do, Do the absolute best that you can and keep things as simple as possible. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And that leads me nicely on to our next tip. And that is, you know, if you are unsuccessful and, you know, we know that roughly around 25% of people are passing on their first assessment. Um, So that leaves roughly 75%. I'm quite good at maths, aren't I? 75% (laughs) of people who are unsuccessful in their first attempt. And with the CFP case study, with the level seven case study, you have three assessment attempts, don't you? So let's talk about how you present your changes on your second or third submissions. Because I have seen some people recently on their third submission who, for example, have altered an assumption, but so they've altered it in their spreadsheets, all factually correct and should have passed, but actually the text in their plan, when they've made reference to it, they've left the old assumption in there. Um, And so they haven't themselves factored in a way of, you know, joining the spreadsheets with the text to make sure that they're not then contradicting themselves by altering something. Yeah. And there are a few things here to keep in mind. One of them is that you have the same assessor throughout the process, all being well, um, You have the same assessor, mark your second and third submission as mark your first. And they have a copy of your first submission. They're likely to put them side by side and have a look and see, you know, have you made the changes where I expected to see changes to be made? Um, And personally, when I handed in my own third submission, when I was applying for my CFP, I greyed out all the text apart from the changes I'd made to the third submission. No one told me to do that. And I rather felt like I was taking my CFP life in my own hands at that point. (laughs) But um, there were just a few tweaks to be made. And I wanted to demonstrate to the assessors that I had addressed all of their concerns and make it even easier for them to see that I was, you know, some sort of superstar and deserved my CFP. (laughs) And I'd done enough to pass. And I sent the corrections back in a bold font and I greyed out all of the rest. Um, So they only had to mark those few pieces yeah. and later on when I was assessing I would I would suggest to candidates perhaps on their second submission in the general feedback that they did that too so that they could make what's already a busy document clearer and I don't think you should be afraid to show where you have done exactly what the assessor asked of you by making it stand out yeah. you know they're likely to watch though for how those changes impact on other areas so if you're going to do it be sure to highlight everything that's relevant, everything that you've changed. Um, You know, if you're saying I've only changed the things in bold, make sure that everything you've changed is in bold. Yeah. 
yeah <laughs> yes Just, don't change other things <laughs> yeah it probably ought to caveat that the CISI at no point have ever told me that that was a great idea however uh, that is what I suggested and lots of candidates did it and I did it myself and it certainly hasn't stopped anyone from passing no and and I think that's a really good point because it's about demonstrating isn't it clearly showing to make you know line of least resistance if you like for the assessors so that they don't have to go ferreting through a 60 page report to say oh well you know a bit of that paragraph was different or you know that the changes that they've made where does it impact in an, in another section um you're just making life easy for them aren't you yeah you are and i i know that there's certain reputation to the assessment process for the CFP, but the assessors really are looking at you having written the answers so that they can give you a pass. They want you to pass. Yeah. So yeah. help them out and show them where everything is. And, you know, what do you have to lose? No. Now, everything to gain your CFP license for a start, which is yeah. what we're after. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> so let's look at the assessment standards because this assessment is very different to other exams that many financial advisors and planners and para planners will have sat in the past. You know, I'm quite often asked, well, Jackie, you know, should I lay it out like this or should I write that reason? And I say to them, what do the standards say? Sure. And I think there is a big disconnect in many people who haven't been successful on their first attempt is that you've got to keep referring back to the standards, haven't you? They are your marking sheet, aren't they? Yeah, when when the IFP, were the Institute of Financial Planning, were running the CFP, I remember they did a course at one of the conferences that was half an hour of, of you know, sitting with an assessor and, and doing a bit like what we're doing today, talking about how they had some tips for you to get through the process and the speaker stood up and said do you know where else do you get given the question which is the case study and then you get given how to write the answers in the standards we're giving yeah. you the answers um in a row you know so I think you have to remember that you're given those standards for a reason you should cross-reference your work with them and make sure you've covered every single bit and you don't need 100% to pass. No. But if you can pick up marks for one of the standards where you drop them on others, then you're more likely to get over the line. Yeah. And there are some pretty easy standards to get marks for, aren't there? Things like, you know, has an emergency fund been recommended? You know, um, and, you know, pretty straightforward things. It have state benefits been included yeah. that you can just use them in your planning stages. And of course, they've been included automatically. Um, and And so a lot of it, a lot of the assessment criteria is really a given. And I think some of the sections, um, like the financial planning and practice section in particular, I always describe that section and also the financial planning and tax section as a kind of sweep up section. Yeah. So, you know, if you have failed heavily in your retirement planning or your education funding sections, the estate planning section, then you are going to fail those other sections as well um, as a consequence of failing those first sets of technical sections. So you have to think through when you, if you aren't successful and you get your feedback letter, you know, I know that I've spoken to so many people who've been fed up, you know, they have put their heart and soul into the plan. And, you know, some people have said to me, you know, should I be quitting my profession? Um, yeah. I thought I love doing what I'm doing. And actually, when I look at the feedback and the marks that they've been given, 
they are very close to passing and yet they feel deflated. Understandably, they feel deflated. But I am jumping about saying, you know, you, you've got 50%. So you're, you, you know, you're yeah. more than halfway there because you only need 65 to pass. And yeah. we've, it's, you know, it's, it's eyes on the prize, isn't it? You need 65 and 51% overall. Yeah, and there are some really easy wins in the standards as well. You know, there's a tick in the box for talking about underwriting. And that's not that's not a technical, how does this work for the clients? It's just purely explaining how underwriting might work on insurance. Yeah. No, let's get that one. Let's let's take that one home. But they yeah, it is tricky. Um You've just got to keep looking and referring back to those assessment criteria, basically, haven't you? You have. You have. And and they're right there in front of you and go back and cross-reference your work with the standards and say to yourself, have I covered that standard? Because the assessors, when they're marking it, are they're putting a tick in a box. Yes, you yeah. have. No, you haven't. There is no grey area. It's yes or no. Yeah, yeah. And they want you they want you to get that point for each of those assessment standards, don't they? Um, you know, they want you to pass. But 65 is all that we are after. That's right. That's yeah. right. And you might want to ace it and you might want to get full marks, but you don't have to in order to pass. Yeah. I know that we talked in, in the next gen community about the level six pass rates. And even for those who pass, you can still obtain your some feedback on, on where you went wrong. And I know that this year's, I think the September sitting, the chief examiner wrote a comment about the standards being uh, slightly reduced than in previous sittings. And I was quite surprised by that. I wasn't expecting a comment like that. But actually what I said, uh, you know, to those people who I'm talking to in the next gen platform, we were saying, you know, it, it's a pass. A pass is a pass, it's a pass, a pass, a pass, a pass. <laughs> and that's it. Um, and it doesn't matter if you got 1% more than a pass or you got the pass mark, then that is all you need to progress on to the level seven. And it's exactly the same with the level seven itself. In order to gain your CFP, all you have to do is get 51% in each of the technical areas and 65% yeah. overall. Yeah, um, you have. You know, everything else, you know, you can strive for perfection. Um, but actually in your Wayfinder entry, if you're a regulated advisor and you go on, put your Wayfinder entry in, then it doesn't say, oh, I got 99%. You know, it <laughs> says I'm a CFP professional. It doesn't say I'm a CFP professional who got 99.99%. Yeah, exactly. Everything you said, I completely agree with. Um, <laughs> I think I think the standards being reduced, I think there was some duplication removed, wasn't there? Yeah. In the past. Yeah. But I think that's about it. I think they're they're quite similar to how they've always been. Yes. Yes. There's not much difference in them. No. Um so that is pretty much all we had to discuss all of your top tips. Um, we So thank you for sharing all of that. It was a really, great, really interesting discussion, isn't it? We <laughs> love talking about all things CFP assessment related, don't we? Um, yes, yeah. So what, what, as we are so close to Christmas now, tell me about your plans for Christmas. What are you up to? Um, well, this Christmas, obviously, you know, subject to certain restrictions in the country right now, we are hoping to go away for Christmas Fantastic, lovely. And do you have a family tradition that do you have traditional things that you do at Christmas that you do every year, irrespective of where you are? Yeah, I, well, I was thinking about this 
uh, the other day if we have traditions in the family and I think ours are ever changing so each time there's been you know someone new in the family a new partner or a new child or someone join us things seem to change but at the moment our Christmas traditions have been to have a day where we all have a Christmas meal and we play games and so I've been arranging a game this week to take to the family do at the weekend Okay, and can you share that with us? What kind of game? Oh no, it's very boring because it has to cater. It has to cater for every age, including oh, you know a seven-year-old. Yeah. yeah, so it, it's quite a boring, you know, guess the post-it note that's stuck on your forehead type game. And I've written some Christmas-themed ones, but this year there's a twist. You see, if you get a prize, you can either take your prize or you can gamble for a mystery bag. And some of some of the mystery bags are stuffed with tins of beans. Oh, so I'm I'm waiting to see how that goes down with our children. Excellent. Well, <laughs> let's hope that uh, your dad gets one. <laughs> well, I hope he gets a tin of beans. Yeah, there's also a bag of shredded paper. I quite hope that he finds that one. <laughs> oh, oops. Oh dear. Okay, I mean, we're just going to get lots of emails from Mike Haig now. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> And uh, and do you love to travel traditionally, you know, when you know, obviously restrictions allow? Are you the traveller that up sticks and goes from house to house between Christmas and New Year and does all of that travelling? Or do you normally have people who come to you? No, we are usually the people doing the travelling and going mm. to visit other people. But I like it that way because the alternative is that I have to cater and that is not my forte. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah same here same here as well actually we we one of our traditions is that we love to have Christmas day on our own I guess it kind of sounds oh, very nice. selfish doesn't it yeah. but we just have one day as a family together and then we you know we trump about before Christmas because obviously we have lots of birthdays in our household in December um, with both parents in this household having birthdays in the the 10 days before yeah. Christmas yeah. Um, and also then Christmas and New Year and everything all of these you know it's really expensive time of the year for presents um, yes. so we we tend to charge about Bef the week before Christmas particularly because of all of our birthdays and seeing friends and family but so we try and set aside Christmas day as one quiet day where we just kind of veg out um, although one of us or pair of us will try and end up you know in the kitchen or whatever but we uh, we have a really unusual um, tradition that has turned in since we had our son uh, and we've stopped eating turkey and Christmas uh, turkey and um, chickens and things like that at Christmas and uh, my son loves a little steak pie oh wow oh, so he's so we, cool. we have a homemade steak pie or one from the butchers the butchers make them especially yeah. for us and uh, we have a little steak pie because we don't eat that much steak during the year so we kind of treat yeah. ourselves to a little steak pie and and vegetables um for christmas dinner so, so i think that's so cool <laughs> it's a my, bit unusual um, isn't it <laughs> my, my dad can't stand turkey so we've never had turkey for christmas dinner because he says this really special meal where all the family is together and you make me eat turkey <laughs> So we've always had beef, which so that's similar. Yeah, it is. It is lovely, isn't it? Yeah, I yeah. think you've you've got to do what works for you at the end of the day. And uh, and if that is beef and a little steak pie for uh, for three, then that's the way it's going to be. Um, it's not Christmas unless you have had some cheese and some alcohol. Let's be honest. So <laughs> prosecco and cheese—that's all that's required, really, for our Christmas traditions. <laughs> Sounds good to me. And. <laughs> And what about, finally, what about New Year's resolutions? Are you a New Year's resolution person? 
Uh, I feel like you're going to know my answer before I say it. But no, <laughs> no, no. I I don't do New Year's resolutions. I just can't conform to rules. I'm I'm just not someone who sticks to a resolution. And if I'm going to do something, it's not likely to be just because it's become the first of January. Mm. But I do commend anyone else who can manage it. And I know that the reason that I can't do it is because I'm inherently contrary. So if everyone else is doing something, I'll dig my heels in and I refuse to join in. <laughs> I, I Maybe you should to grow up. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you should do something on the first of June <laughs> instead of the first yeah. of January or something. First of July. Yeah, <laughs> six months. What, in. Maybe that's what I'll do. Oh uh, no, I just don't want to, Jackie. <laughs> <laughs> I can remember one year my dad always I used to bite my nails when I was very young and my dad was always telling me off and buying that horrible um stuff that you, you stuff you used to paint your nails with that would taste disgusting to try and stop me of course it yes. didn't stop me at all um no. but I can remember in the middle of December he was saying to me you know you really should stop you know maybe for a new year's resolution you should just stop and then I just thought one day in the middle of December I'm just going to stop now and, you know, yeah. I don't need to wait for the new year. I just stop now. And that was it. I've never bitten my nails since. That was a very long time ago. Um, so it's funny, yeah. isn't it? Once I guess once you kind of, you make, you put your mind to it, then you just make up your resolutions. Yeah, I think if you're going to do something, you'll do it no matter yeah. what the day of the year is. But, you know, I anyone who does do it, I'm always jealous. If they've stuck to something and, you know, by March, they, they, they've managed to say that they've done three months of, of whatever it was that they said they were going to do, I think, oh, if I'd have started three months ago, think where I'd be now. But <laughs> I, I never do it. <laughs> no, no. Well, it's each to their own at the end of the day, isn't it? As Definitely. long as everybody has a good time at Christmas and New Year, um, restrictions allowing, obviously. Hopefully we, I know, Joe, that you will join me in wishing all of our listeners a Merry Christmas and a, yes. a happy and prosperous 2022. Um, yeah. We hope that everybody stays well um, and out of mischief, generally, um, as far as food and drink go too. Um, <laughs> and uh, and we wish them every success, don't we, with their Certified Financial Planner certification in 2022. Yeah, and I think a bit of mischief is probably allowed. But yes, best wishes to everybody and stay safe. Thank you. Wasn't that a really interesting discussion with Jo? She's got so many great insights into how to assess and approach your financial plan for the assessment so that you can become a certified financial planner in the UK. So that's it for me for our first series of podcasts for 2021. I'd like to take this opportunity to wish you a very Merry Christmas and happy and prosperous 2022. And we will be back in January with another series of podcasts with some amazing financial planning guests. That's it for me. Bye for now. <laughs>